I want to I ask, especially the ladies in the room, ladies, I need your help. I wonder how many of you, uh, whether you're married or not, how many of you put a lot of thought into your wedding? Raise your hand. I just need to see your hands. A lot of hands. Uh, even before you were married, even before you were engaged, how many of you thought about your wedding before you were even engaged? Yeah, how many of you picked your bridesmaids before you picked your husband? Anybody? <laughs> right? You thought about uh, the wedding dress. You picked out your wedding dress. Maybe you had a hope chest, or maybe if you're a little younger, maybe you had a Pinterest page with ideas for your wedding, and you pinned pictures of cakes, and you pinned pictures of bridesmaids' dresses, and you thought about that, and you had really everything picked out. Guys, I want to tell you, sometimes maybe your wife had everything picked out for your wedding before they ever met you. Like you were just the missing piece. You were just the last piece of the puzzle. Now, Guys in the room, I want to ask you, how many of you put much thought into your wedding uh, before you got engaged? Guys? Anyone? One, one man. One man in the room put a lot of thought. i got to tell you, uh, the honest truth is this, guys. If you ever thought about what it might be like to being married, honestly, you probably thought about what it would be like to have a woman that you could be intimate with every day and twice on Sundays, right? That was the thought that went into marriage, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on that, okay? But I'm just going to tell you that women put a lot more thought and effort into the wedding and planning for those things than guys do. In fact, I I came across... Women are are much... well, I don't want to say it this way. I'll just say it this way. I came across this as I was preparing for this series. It's from a book that I don't have right now. If somebody else sent it to me, I'd give proper credit if I had it, but I didn't read this book. But it goes like this. How to treat a woman. Wine her, dine her. Call her, hold her, surprise her, compliment her, smile at her, listen to her, laugh with her, cry with her, romance her, encourage her, believe in her, pray with her, pray for her, cuddle with her, shop with her, give her jewelry, buy her flowers, hold her hand, write love letters to her, go to the ends of the earth and back for her. How to treat a man. Show up naked. Bring chicken wings. Don't block the TV. I think I just heard amens there. <laughs> Men and women are so different, aren't we? We are so different, and we have very different views on what we want or what we need from marriage. And the truth is, as a, as a father of two girls, I have two daughters, I'm very concerned about what our society, what our culture teaches kids about marriage. I mean, even from a very young age, when kids are young and old enough to watch Disney movies, they get this idea that one day, if you're in the right place at the right time, you'll meet the one, right? That your Prince Charming will come and sweep you off your feet and he will be handsome and he'll be rich and he'll smell good. And from that day forward, everything is going to be perfect. You'll have the house and the white picket fence and the 2.3 kids and the dog and you'll live happily ever after. Even the idea of that song that Cameron and Carissa just did a beautiful job with, that song that we base this series on is this, without the one, I'm nothing, I can do nothing. I'm a, I'm a writer without any words. I'm a story who nobody's heard, right? You know, but with the one, I can do anything. I, I'm complete. I can live happily ever after. But the harsh reality is that in far too many marriages, that happily ever after comes much, much later. And for some people, it never comes. And so we're starting this series today called Dear True Love. And while it's a marriage series, we have been very intentional or tried to be very intentional about realizing that there are a lot of people in our church that aren't married. And we're trying to make this not just for married people. We know that in our church, we have married people and single people and divorced people and widowed people and it's complicated people, 
right? We have uh, people, we have women that attend without their husbands. We have husbands that attend uh, without their wives. And if you're in that category, we know that you only get one side of the story. But the truth is that all of us, all of us only get to be a part of one side of the story. For all of us, even if we're married, even if we attend church loyally with our husband, with our wife every uh, week, we can only have an impact on one half of that equation. And so while we will never, ever water down the word of God, we're trying to touch on all of these situations as we go through this series. So here's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. We're going to look at three different marriages in the Old Testament, all right? Three that some people would say dysfunctional marriages. I think you'll see that today as we open up the Bible and look at this story. But they are marriages orchestrated, we believe, for a reason. They are ordained by God and used by God for a purpose or for a lesson. I mean, did you know that you can learn from all of Scripture? Even uh, people who aren't perfect in the Bible. In fact, there are no perfect people in the Bible except for Jesus himself. But God used all of them to further his kingdom and to tell his purpose. And so the one I want to talk about today is from the book of Genesis chapter 29. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis 29. We'll get there in just a minute. Uh, today's scripture is about a man named Jacob, and Jacob's story is a long one. We, we don't have time to examine everything that happened in his life, but uh, one thing you should know is that Jacob was a twin. Uh, scripture says that when he and his twin Esau were being born, that Jacob grabbed a hold of Esau's heel as Esau was trying to be born. Jacob grabbed a hold of him like he was trying to pull him back in so that Jacob would be the firstborn. There was a lot, of, um, a, a lot of stature that came with being the firstborn son in this culture um, before Christ. And so uh, the, the idea is that Jacob, even as an infant, uh, wanted to be the firstborn, but it didn't work. And so Esau was born first, and so he was the older brother. And so he won the birthright, which meant that he would get a double portion of the inheritance when his father died. And that's what Jacob uh, was after his whole life. In those days, like I said, the oldest son in the family was a prized position. And so um, Jacob, though his heel-grabbing trick failed, uh, later fooled. Now, some people might say cheated. Uh, some people might say bribed uh, his brother out of the birthright. And so even though Jacob was the younger brother, what happened was that Jacob earned the position or, or bribed himself or tricked himself into, deceived himself into the position of being, uh, getting the birthright and being the older brother. And so actually the name Jacob means deceiver. What a great thing to name your kid, right? Uh, the name Jacob means deceiver. And remember, we were talking last week about the importance of a name. How'd you like to grow up with that? You know, and so Jacob, when we meet him in this story today in Genesis 29, he's actually on the run. He has uh, deceived his brother. He has earned the birthright and his father's blessing. And he's running away from his brother who is big and strong and hairy and has weapons and is quite honestly a little bit ticked off right now at Jacob. And so that's where we see him. I mean, this is actually in the Bible, people. This is a story that's in the Bible. You don't need to watch Scandal when you've got the Bible because there's so much drama in there. Um, you don't need to, you, you, we've got drama like this. I mean, who needs television, right? So Jacob is running to find his uncle, uh, a man named Laban, uh, where he thinks he'll be safe. And on the way, he sees some shepherds that are standing by a well with their flock of sheep. Um, and uh, he asks if they know Laban. And they say, yeah. And he and his daughter, Rachel, usually come by here about this time of day to water their sheep. And so Jacob decides to wait around. And before you know it, he sees the most beautiful girl in the world. If you were ever single, if you could ever imagine yourself single, how many of you have been there? <laughs> you get, you're in this situation. You see the most beautiful person you've ever met. And, and you think, 
in the history of mankind, no one has ever felt this way about another person, right? And that's what Jacob is going through. No one ever, and he says, you know, if I don't get to know her, if I can't marry her, I'm just going to die. That's where we find Jacob. Now, what does he know about Rachel at this point? He knows what she looks like. That's pretty much it, right? I mean, that's all he knows about her. So, but for those of you who haven't done the math yet, Rachel is the daughter of Laban, right? Laban is Jacob's uncle, which means that Rachel is his cousin. So this story takes place in the deep south of Israel, okay? Just so you know. <laughs> no, it's actually pretty common then. Okay, but but he decides if I can just marry Rachel, then my life will finally have meaning. Right? It doesn't matter what the cost, I've got to be married to her. Now you might snicker at this or laugh or think that's ridiculous, but the truth is that we do this all the time today. In fact, maybe you were a girl in high school who always had a boyfriend. You know, all throughout high school and college, it seems like your friends were always dating, and if you didn't or you don't have a boyfriend, then you feel inadequate. You feel incomplete. You feel of less value. Or we see it in the husband who's had the faithful wife and family for a lot of years. That's been enough. But then as middle age hits, he's not making much progress in his career. He's not as handsome as he once was. He has less hair and more fat. And he, he decides that what will really make him complete is a different wife, preferably a younger, prettier model. You know, maybe you've recently divorced and you know, you're so lonely and you think, I've just got to get a partner. If I could just, if I could just get a date. That will, that will fill, fill this hole that's left in my heart. You know, in all of these cases, the thinking is, if I can just have that relationship, you know, if I can just have that marriage, if I can just be with that person, that's going to fill up my emptiness. Like, you're the Mac to my cheese. You know, you're like the, the, the uh, Jerry Maguire complex. You complete me. That seems to be what Jacob is thinking too. So let's pick up a story, Genesis 29. Uh, we'll start with verse 16. Now, Laban had two daughters, the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. That's really important. Okay, that is going to play a part in this story in just a minute. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And then Laban agrees to that. Now, can I just speak to you openly about this passage? Because here's what's happened. The author is being very kind to Leah. When he says she has weak eyes, he's not talking about her vision. All right? He, he's really, uh, maybe she had a lazy eye, okay? But she, he's really using a very polite way of saying, woof. I mean, because he, you look, he doesn't compare Leah with weak eyes to Rachel, who has 20-20 vision and doesn't need corrective lenses and can drive without contacts, right? <laughs> Leah has weak eyes, but Rachel has a fine figure and is beautiful. Now, we don't know if Rachel was uh, thin or if she was, you know, all about that base, right? But we know that she had a fine figure and that she was beautiful and that Jacob was attracted to her. Leah, not so much. It's like when your friend's telling you about the blind date, you know, and she says, well, he's got a great personality. It's her way of saying, uh, attractive? No, I wouldn't say attractive. Um, now, the thing is, the reality is that physical attractiveness is the first thing that most people see in a potential mate. It's the first thing that when we meet somebody face-to-face, it's the first thing we notice. So I, I don't want to underestimate the value of that. In fact, I believe that God, the way God made us attractive physically to the opposite sex is a gift. 
It's a good thing. He didn't have to make the opposite sex attractive to us, right? But in this overstimulated, oversexed culture, the external is valued significantly higher than what we have on the inside, isn't it? And actually, in this story, we learn that probably the less attractive sister, Rachel, is the better person than the attractive one. But Jacob can't see this. He's so blinded by her figure and by her beauty. Now, I see this far more often than I would like. I mean, where it's especially prevalent is when men and women are either having an affair or are right on the cusp of an affair. They're often so blinded by how attractive and successful and maybe friendly that that person is that they are lured into an affair without ever seeing anything on the inside. He, he doesn't even know, you know how she loves her children. She doesn't even know how he treats his family, how he leads his family spiritually or anything on the inside. And so here's what's likely going on with Jacob. He's lonely. Okay, we know that. He's away from his family. He, he's thinking, my whole life is empty. I, I'm not worth anything until I'm married. And if I can just marry this woman, my life will finally matter. I'll finally have value as a person. And if, just for a minute, if I could just talk to the single and the divorced people in the room today, I just want you to know, I, I think this, I know this is prevalent in our society and, and unfortunately in our churches. We see so often that we place such a high value on marriage that sometimes we fail to give adequate value to people who are single or people who are divorced or people who are widowed. The parents of young adults, if you've got a young adult uh, in your house, just be careful that your expectations for your kids to get married don't weigh them down and make them feel devalued. But still, single people, I think so many times, you can fall into that trap. You can fall into that trap of thinking, you know, uh, if I can just have that marriage, if I can just have that relationship, then I'll be complete. And I believe, if I can, I'd like to suggest that maybe the reason that you're not achieving all God has called you to today is because you're so focused on marriage or in a relationship being the answer to your problems. And I think what we can really learn from this story of Jacob is, is three things that happen when we believe that marriage is the answer to our problems. Okay, and so I think uh, while a, a lot of single people will get something from this, I think the married people in the room, I think you might see yourself in some of these too, and I hope that you'll get something from this too. And so these are in your notes. If you picked up a message note card when you walked in, you might want to follow along. The first one is this. When marriage is the answer, you will compromise more than you should. Genesis 29, 18 says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now you might hear that. And if you're a modern, sophisticated woman, uh, you might be offended by that because it sounds like Rachel's being treated as property, right? I'm going to work for you and you're going to give me your daughter. I will buy your daughter with my labor. But the reality is in that culture, a man would often purchase the right to marry a woman uh, with, with, with wealth, with livestock, or, or with crops, or if he didn't have anything, remember Jacob's on the run from his family at this point, then he could purchase her with her labor or the right to marry her. And Jacob didn't have much. But the thing is, the thing we notice about this is his offer is really crazy. It would have been quite common, I've heard, to work for a man for two years to earn the right to marry his daughter. This means that Jacob was willing to pay about four times the going rate. That's really crazy, right? I mean, a better negotiator would have started with one year and tried to get her for less, but Jacob didn't do that. He was so in love. If you read between the lines, he's basically saying, I will do anything for her. I'll give up more than I should. She's basically, she's the only one for me, which quite honestly is something that we do all the time. 
When a, a young girl, for instance, decides she is saving herself for marriage, but then she meets a guy and he's good looking and he pushes her sexually and she wants to marry him, she could decide that maybe if I give him my body, maybe he'll give me his love. The problem with that is that um, the guy can take his love away, right? But the girl can never get back what she's given up. She compromises. Or, or a guy's dating a young lady and she's, she's good looking, but she's not very nice. She cuts him down all the time. She doesn't respect his family. Maybe she pushes him into making more money so he can buy more things for her. And he thinks, if I can just get married, I can change her. Like, I really can. So he goes into debt to impress her and hope that she'll marry him. He compromises. You know, or she's a strong Christian and meets a guy who's not. And uh, he's a nice guy. He just doesn't go to church. He doesn't want anything to do with the Lord. doesn't want anything to do with spirituality. But he's guilted into it. So he goes while they're dating. He goes to church with her. And then they get married. And then all of a sudden he stops. He doesn't have any interest in it anymore. She, why? She compromised. Right? She compromised and gave up on her values so she could, you know, have that relationship. Jacob says, I'll work seven years. Maybe two would have been enough, but I'll work seven because she is the only one for me. When marriage is your answer, you'll compromise more than you should. Number two is this. When, when marriage is always the answer, you become demanding. Uh, flip down to verse 21, Genesis 29, 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. You can read this story and easily overlook this verse. I mean, actually, after all, Jacob has done everything that's been expected of him. It's his time. But look at the tone of this verse. Give me my wife. My time's completed, right? I've done my part. Now it's time for her to do hers. He's become very demanding. Now, with this attitude, how do you think this marriage is going to start out? Is it going to be a loving, serving, submitting to one another marriage? Will it be a blood covenant with both spouses looking after each other's interests? Because to me, it looks like a contract, right? I've done what you expected of me. Now it's time for her to come do what's expected of her. You know, can you see how shallow this is? He's not polite about it. He's not gentle about it. What he says dishonors his wife and her father. And this happens so often in our marriages today. Uh, What started as a covenant devolves into a contract. I'll do my part as long as you do your part. If you help me clean the house, I'll give you what you want once the kids go to bed. If you work hard and do all the hard work around the house, I'll cook what you want for dinner. If and only if you do your part, then I'll do my part. You know, we become very demanding. And, and sex and affection often become our number one weapons and our number one bargaining chips in that. You know, when he stops doing what I want, I'll stop doing what he wants or vice versa. You know, many of you women feel like you're married to a very demanding husband. He works hard all day to earn money. He comes home. He has very high expectations for what the house will look like what dinner will taste like, how quiet it will be. When he comes home and he looks around and he sees things that don't meet his expectations, he thinks, what what have you been doing all day? How was Ellen today, honey? (laughs) Men, many of you feel like you're married to a very demanding wife. She has high expectations for what she will wear and what she will drive and where she will live. And so what if you have to work a little, a few extra hours to make that happen? Or if we both have to work to keep up that standard of living? You know, I deserve this. If something happens and you don't get that bonus or you don't get that promotion, she says, well, maybe you need to work a little harder. Both men and women can be demanding. But I want to say this to the wives in the room, okay? Sometimes, women, you have demands that go completely uncommunicated, Honey, what's wrong? Nothing. Don't say nothing. I can tell something's wrong. Well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you, right? You should know. 
Ladies, let me tell you, we don't know. We, <laughs> amen. We can't tell what's happening. I told my wife very early in, my, in our marriage, I can't read your mind. And, and when you do decide to tell us, please tell us slowly and maybe more than once. We're just not as smart as you think we are. You know, honestly, my wife can be pretty demanding. I come home after a long day of work, and maybe I've had a meeting that night. I'm tired. I just want to go to bed. And she's like, come on, baby. Can't you just stay up just a little bit longer just for me? And sometimes I just want to cuddle, you know? That's a joke, by the way. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I can be very demanding. I come home on a Sunday after getting up early and preaching two services and being on all morning and praying with people and closing down the building. I love that stuff. I do. I love it. But I get home and I just want to, I want to lay down on the couch and watch football. You know, I want to veg out for a couple hours. But if the house is noisy or the kids want to play or my wife needs to go somewhere, I can turn into a real grump. I can be real demanding about that. She says, I need to go to the grocery store. And I said, get me some nachos while you're out. You know, tell the kids to shut up. Get them out of here. Rub my feet. What I've found is that even in a really, really good marriage, it's easy to settle into that contract mentality, to that scorekeeping mentality, right? Like, I've done this for you. You need to do that for me. I did my part. You do yours. When marriage is your answer, you'll compromise more than you should, and you become demanding. And number three is this. When marriage is your answer, you are never satisfied. When we all enter marriage with so many different expectations. You know, there's something a lot of couples never think about. I'm working with four couples right now who I'm officiating their wedding. And one of the first things I tell every couple that I meet with is this. Hey, you're going to spend an awful lot of time and effort thinking about putting effort into your wedding. But you need to put even more time into thinking about your marriage and what that's going to look like after the big day comes. Not nearly enough. uh, Most couples don't put nearly enough time into planning their marriage and how that's going to work. And when marriage is your answer, you walk into a situation where you expect that person to meet all of your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs. And that just sets your spouse up for guaranteed failure. This is what happens to Jacob, too, in an extreme way, I'll admit, okay? He's thinking, I've got to marry this girl. She's beautiful. I've worked seven years. Now I'll get what I deserve. But good old Uncle Laban had a problem. Remember, Rachel is the younger daughter, right? And Leah is the older daughter. And in this culture, it was tradition to marry off the older girl first. And Rachel's the younger one, and she's the one to whom Jacob was attracted. So here's what he does. Uh, Wedding parties of the day were large affairs, very long, sometimes seven days. They lasted an entire week. Lots of alcohol flowing, right? So Laban throws this feast. The wedding happens in the evening. Jacob is likely drunk. And here's what happens in verse 23. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah... And brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. (gasps) Everybody gasp. (gasps) Jacob wakes up, and he looks over at his lovely wife, and he sees, what? Weak eyes. (laughs) (gasps) Maybe that's happened to you before. Maybe you got married, and the first time you saw your wife without makeup, you looked over, and you went, (gasps) Maybe you got married and the first time you saw your husband in the morning, you went, oh, you got to do something about that. <laughs> this is what happens. Jacob wakes up and he's, he's what? He's disappointed. He freaks out. Verse 25, so Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? It's not fair. 
I think most of us can look at Jacob's situation and say the reality of, yeah, it's not fair, right? That's not what he worked for. He didn't get what he was promised. He was deceived. Listen to the irony of Jacob, whose name means deceiver, being deceived. The truth is this is going to happen anytime you think that someone can meet your every need. Anytime you think marriage is the answer, you're always going to end up never satisfied. Never satisfied. I heard a speaker one time, John Maxwell, maybe you know him, John is a great uh, leadership speaker, a uh, great Christian guy, uh, noted uh, speaker on, on business leadership, and um, he was talking about a conversation that his wife had with a woman she was working with, and uh, his wife, Margaret, was asked, Margaret, does John make you happy? And John was there, and so he kind of beamed, and he said, I just can't wait to hear how my wife is going to praise me in this moment, and uh, he was surprised to hear the answer when she turned to her coworker and said, you know what? I learned early on in my marriage that John is never going to be able to make me happy. And so his face kind of fell, as you can imagine. (gasps) And he looks at her and goes, well, tell her the rest of the story. And so Margaret said, I need to find my joy through a relationship with the Lord. And once I do that, then John just adds to my happiness. Right? If we're counting on someone else to make us happy and fill our needs, we will never be satisfied. So what can we do? I mean, for those of you who have good marriages, great marriages, you might get something out of this. For the last few minutes, though, I want to talk to the single people in the room, the divorced people, the widowed people, or the people who are in very precarious or unhappy marriage right now. I want us to think about the lesson in this story, the lesson that we can learn uh, from movies and sitcoms and songs and novels and all of our pop culture, the idea that if we just find our one, that we will be complete. And as someone who's been happily married for 22 years... I want to tell you that the secret to a great marriage, um, and and I do consider we have a great marriage. It's not a perfect marriage, but she's working on that. Um, (laughs) We've been married for 22 years. She's never once tried to poison me, and I think that's great. So here's the key for all of you who want a great marriage, whether you're married or not. Don't work on finding the ideal spouse. Work on being the ideal spouse. And the sad truth of us, for so many of us as single people, is that we bought into this lie that if we just find the right person, we'll be happy. And I don't want to imply that in any way that it doesn't matter who you marry, because it very much does. But the truth is, far more than who you marry, what makes a difference is who you are becoming. You know, this is what God cares about. It's what you should care about, too. And for those of you who are married, you need to know that you can't change the heart of your spouse. For those of you who are single or engaged and you're thinking about getting married, you need to know that you will not be able to change the heart of your spouse or of your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You can change their behavior, maybe, but only Jesus can change their heart. I see examples of this all the time. Everybody will hear this, um, this message and you'll say, I wish my spouse could have been here to hear that. I wish my husband, I wish my wife, I wish, you know, hey, honey, you know, you're supposed to work on being the ideal spouse. Did you hear what Steve said today? You know, and I have guys that come up to me sometimes and say, you know, Ephesians 5. Next week we're going to talk about Ephesians 5, uh, about the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. And there's, a, role, there's a, a verse in there that said, wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for Christ. And, and I'll have guys come up to me and said, hey, Ephesians 5 says the wife is supposed to submit to me. And I always say, hey, what's the first word in that verse? Wives. Yeah, that verse isn't for you. You're not a wife, you're a husband. You got to focus on the part that you can do something about. And for those of you who are married, what a better marriage. What's the key? Well, I think there's a verse. It's not often viewed as a marriage verse, but I think it's so telling. It's absolutely perfect for marriage. And it comes in the context of Jesus' teaching. 
And he's up on a mountain. He's telling everybody who will listen. He said, look, so many of you are worried about your clothes, what you're going to wear or your food, what you're going to eat. You worry about your life, your body, what's going to happen to you tomorrow. But Jesus says, you know what? Worrying about all that stuff, well, it just doesn't do any good. It can't add to your life. And besides, your heavenly father already knows what you need anyway. He knows what you need. And he says this, he, he says the perfect verse, I think, to end week one of our marriage series. He says this, Matthew six thirty three. he says, but seek first his kingdom, that's God's kingdom, for, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. So what do you do? You're single, you're divorced, you're here without your husband, you're here without your wife, you're married, your marriage is falling apart. What do you do? You don't worry about your marriage. You seek God's kingdom first. You know, we don't have time to tell the rest of Jacob's story. I hope that you'll take some time this week to read it, but I'm going to tell you, it doesn't get cleaner. It only gets messier. Uh, Leah's not going anywhere, but neither is Rachel. And by the end of this thing, Jacob's going to end up with two wives and two concubines and lots of kids and lots of mess. But God uses it. And here's what we'll see is, is if you read the rest of that story, you see that um, Jacob and Leah have a child, uh, an unwanted child from an unwanted wife. That child's name is Judah. And Judah eventually has a, a son, who eventually has a son, who eventually has a son. And many, many, many generations later, what we see if we read um, Matthew is that Judah is in the lineage of Jesus. And, and so God can take any mistake any brokenness in your marriage, and he can redeem it to make something great out of it. I mean, God is love. He, he created love. He knows love. He understands love. Scripture says he is love. First John four sixteen says, God is love. Whoever lives in God or whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And so as we spend the next couple of weeks in dear, true love, I want you to see and understand that you can't truly love or be loved without the love of God in your life. That no one has ever loved you or will ever love you like Jesus does. For, for, for you, he gave up his position in heaven. He came down to earth to live as a human. He, he endured mocking and scorn, and not just on the cross. I'm talking about for much of his life. And, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a tragic death so that you could have a relationship with him just to demonstrate his love for you. And so... When you're looking for true love, there's no other way to find it than to seek God's kingdom first. Everything else will be given to you as well. We're going to go into a time of, of worship through singing here in just a minute. But before we do that, um, I want to pray with you. And um, it's really, really hard to figure out how to pray when we've got so many different situations in the room. But if you would just, if you would just close your eyes and bow your heads, uh, here's what I want you to do. If you're married, if you're here with your spouse... Would you just grab his or her hand right now? Just hold hands. And it might be awkward. I know you may have had a rough day this morning. It may have been a tough time. Um, maybe you're not really on the best terms right now. But I'm believing that God wants to do something great in your marriage, no matter where you are. If, you're, if you had a great marriage that you've been married for 55 years or you're newly married and you're just trying to work through all the kinks or maybe you're on the outs and one of you's getting ready to leave, I believe that just like the marriage of Jacob and Leah, that God can take something that is meant for evil and use it for good and redeem that in your life. And I want to pray for the married people in the room first, and then I'm going to pray for the single, divorced, the widowed.
So if you pray with me, bow your heads and pray with me. God, I just, um, I thank you for your word that even through a story that seems so broken and so weird, so foreign to us, that we can learn something about marriage uh, through your word. God, I pray right now for the married people in the room as they're um, holding on to one another, as they're holding hands, for the ones whose um, spouses aren't here today. God, I just pray that they could seek God together. Would you give them the the strength, the power, the courage this week to spend time in Scripture, to to spend time praying uh, with each other? And God, for those who are here and their spouse isn't a believer, they're not here today maybe, God, could you just give them the courage and the strength to pray for their spouse? God, I pray that each and every one of us, if we're married, we would have the grace to accept our husband or our wife as they are, that that God would move in our hearts to make us into the people that you want us to be, to make us into the the right person to be married uh, to that husband or wife. God, I pray that Christ wouldn't be just a part of our marriages, but at the center of our marriages. Lord, I pray specifically now for people who are here whose spouse isn't a believer or whose spouse isn't here at church with them today that, that, you, that they wouldn't focus on that at all, but on being the best partner that they can be, on loving their husband, loving their wife well. And Lord, I just pray now for our, my friends in the room that are single, that are divorced, that are widowed, never been married. Lord, I pray that they would turn their eyes to you that, that even if they're in the midst of trying to find the one or you know, struggling with what happened in their marriage, God, that they would realize that you are the one and that they could find perfect satisfaction in you. God, I thank you that you're the giver of all things and that only in you, when we're seeking hard after you and we're seeking your kingdom, can we be complete and fulfilled. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.